That's where we're starting this morning, Acts chapter 10. Actually, we'll recap a little of verse 27 and 28 and 29, and then we'll get into 30 and get as far as uh, we can go uh, in our passage this morning. Let's uh, bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Brian and Beth, and we thank you for their ministry. We thank you for the many, many, many lives that you're touching through them. We ask you, Father, to meet every need that they have, to give them wisdom, to fill them with your spirit, to uh, give them uh, great ministry as they uh, uh, go forth to do what you have called them to do. Thank you for the lives that they touch. And uh, Father, remind us that uh, in a different way, perhaps, we touch lives every day as well and need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, uh, need to be ready to share, to uh, witness as we see Peter doing in our passage this morning, uh, to the truth and the love of our Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask you to guide us now as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The measure of how significant Acts chapter, how significant rather, that Acts chapter 10 is, is seen in that Peter had stayed at the home of Simon the Tanner, who was a Jew in an unclean profession because of his contact with dead bodies. Peter stayed in his home. It's a measure of how significant what's about to happen in Acts chapter 10 is that yet to go into the home of a Gentile, as he'll do with Cornelius, God has to intervene in his life and change his thinking. And that's what's significant, and I don't want us to miss the significance of what is going on here. Peter it's okay in his mind as long as he's in the home of a Jewish tanner, even though, <clears throat> excuse me, that would make him unclean. But God needs to give him special motivation to go into the home of a Gentile. And that is what is so significant about what's going on here in Acts chapter 10. We finished last week with verses 27 to 29. Talking with him, that is, talking with Cornelius, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law, and, and you'll remember it wasn't against the Mosaic law, it was against their traditional law, the Talmud law. It is against our law to eat with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? God had to change Peter's mind. God had to instruct Peter. And he did that through the vision of the sheep with the clean and the unclean animals. And Peter understood that he should not call any man unclean and not call any man impure. He could no longer look upon them as unclean. Peter understood 
now through God's intervention in his life that unclean animals in the vision, as one writer said, were a metaphor for people whom he had seen as unclean. So he comes without a problem to the home of Cornelius to share the gospel. The meaning of the vision had become clear, one writer said. Gentiles are no longer to be treated as impure or second class. That's where we are, we are in our study now this morning. Starting at verse 30, Peter rehearses the circumstances that called him, or excuse me, Cornelius rehearses the circumstances that called him to send for Peter. In verses 30 to 32, we read this. Cornelius answered, Four days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me, and we know from our study that that was an angel who came to Cornelius in a vision. A man shining, stand, uh, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I was sent for, so I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. So Cornelius rehearses with Peter the circumstances that caused him to send for Peter. It, he's basically saying, God told me to send for you. God told me to send for you. Now, I want to take a moment to, to think about this. We've looked at a previous passage where uh, Cornelius has the vision of the angel telling him to go send for Peter. We've looked at the passage where Peter sees the vision of the sheep being let down with the clean and the unclean animals. And that might lead us to ask a question, should we expect to be guided in that way today? Should we expect that when God's going to guide us, that it's going to be in some supernatural manifestation, should we expect to be guided in this same way? Or are these phenomena peculiar to the apostolic age before the Scripture was completed? That's a, a question that we need to answer. Should we expect to be guided by visions of sheets of animals? Should we expect to be guided by visions of angels? Or are those phenomena peculiar to the apostolic age before the written Scripture? And the answer to that is, no, we should not be expected to, guide, to be guided in that way. You and I have something they did not have, and that is we have the completed Scripture, and God guides today through His Word. Not through visions of sheets of animals, not through visions of angels. God, God, God guides you, and He guides me today through His Word. 
That's why it's so crucial that you and I are in the Word of God on a regular basis. That's why it's so crucial that you're here this morning. Praise God that you're here. I thank God for you. I thank for God that you are interested in enough in worshiping God and in studying the Word of God that you're here this morning. Because the way God's going to guide your life and the way He guides my life is exactly the same way. Not through visions, not through angelic manifestations, but He guides us through His Word. It's crucial that you and I understand the Word. One of the commentators said it this way, Now that God's people have the Scriptures complete, the Holy Spirit inwardly illumines the mind through the medium of biblical truth as the believer seeks and prays for such guidance. Now what that is saying is very simply this. It's saying that as you and I study the Word of God, as you and I read the Word of God, the Holy Spirit will illumine our minds and will, and as we pray for guidance, God will give us guidance, but He'll do it through His Word. It's so important because we should never detach ourselves from the Word of God. We should never detach ourselves from the Word of God. We find our direction in life through the Word of God. The believer today is guided by the Scripture through prayer and the Holy Spirit's filling ministry. That's how you and I are guided today. We are guided by the Scripture, through prayer, understanding that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And remember, that just simply means under the control of the Spirit. Under the control of the Spirit. And as we yield control to the Spirit, we are led by God. We are led by God. That's how God leads us today. So we should not expect some kind of miraculous manifestation. We should not expect to see angels before us telling us what to do. God has given us something significant, and that is the completed Word of God. So it's crucial that we spend time in the Word of God. It's crucial that we read the Word of God. It's crucial that we study the Word of God. Well, Peter asks a question in this section. May I ask why you sent for me? One writer said about his question, the remarkable thing in this section is Peter's question. Had he forgotten the Acts 1-8 commission to go to the uttermost part of the earth? In other words, Peter, don't you understand? God's doing what He said He'd do. God said you're to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. That's already happened, right? They've already been witnesses in Jerusalem. They've already been witnesses in Judea. The Gospel has already gone forth to the Samaritans. Peter, don't you get it? What do you, why do you think you're in the home of a Gentile? God said that the message would go forth to the uttermost part of the world. But I think the writer has it right when he says this, today, 
we can look back at developing events in the church and understand what God was doing. But it might not have been that easy had we been living in the midst of these events. In other words, we may not have been able to see the forest for the trees. We may not have been able to understand at that time. It may not have been so clear to Peter as it is to you and it is to me as we study the Word of God from Acts chapter 10. Why is he there? He's there because God's expanding the gospel to the Gentiles. Wow! That's fantastic. That's fantastic. It includes us. It includes us. God's expanding the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, one writer said, what a divinely prepared audience we see in verse 33. I sent for you immediately. It was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you. Wow. Remember from last week, Cornelius had invited his family. Cornelius had invited his acquaintances, his friends, to hear what God had to say. And as the writer said, it was a divinely prepared audience. Another writer said this, few preachers have ever had a more receptive audience. I think that's great. Few preachers have ever had a more receptive audience than Peter had this day. Cornelius invited his friends, his family, to hear the word of God. What a great example I think this is to you and to me of the work of the Holy Spirit in preparing the people that you and I are to share with. You know, so I, I think we get so, and we're going to talk about witnessing a little bit before we're finished this morning, but, you know, uh, I think we, <clears throat> we get so uptight about it. We get so uptight about sharing our faith. We get so uptight about witnessing. We get so uptight about evangelism. I think part of the reason is that we, we don't think about the fact that God's going before us preparing that person, preparing those people to hear the message. We feel like it's all on us and the weight falls upon our shoulders. If you want to strike terror into the heart of a believer, say, how's your witnessing? Add prayer and, and uh, quiet time and you'll have the trifecta of terror for a believer. You know, this is a great example of God's preparatory work through the Holy Spirit in people's hearts. God is going before us. God is going before us. God is opening the door. God's giving us the opportunity there's another thing I want us to see in this particular section, and that is Cornelius's spiritual journey. Cornelius begins with the knowledge of the existence of God. He moves on to sensing his need of righteousness from God, understanding that his righteousness was not enough. And we'll talk more about that in just a second. And finally, the third stage of his spiritual journey is specific knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he begins 
acknowledging the existence of God. And, that, and that, that may, you may identify with that in your own life. Maybe that's how you came to faith in Jesus Christ. You began, first of all, by understanding, well, there's a God. This universe came from somewhere. Some, somebody or something powerful enough made this universe. So it allows for the existence of God and, and then... God convicts you through the spirit of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment and prepares us for the specific knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, remember about Cornelius. He was, a, and this is so important in this passage, Cornelius was a, right, a, a religious person. He was a pious person. He he went to synagogue. He, even though he did not go all the way to becoming a proselyte to Judaism, he was not circumcised and he did not take that step. But he was a pious man. He was a religious man. He was a moral man. He cared for people. He prayed for people. Pious, religious, moral, and lost. And lost. How do we know? Because as we read through this section, we see that God had to reach him. He had to put his faith in Jesus Christ. That's why God sends Peter to him. So he might take the opportunity to put his faith in Jesus Christ. You know that this passage puts the lie to so many things that people say so glibly that are just not true. Things like, all you must have to do is sincere and live a good life and you can go to heaven. A good life won't get anybody to heaven. A good life won't get anybody to heaven. You need righteousness. And not just any righteousness. You need the righteousness of God through His Son, Jesus Christ for God to allow us into his heaven. This Acts chapter 10 and the story of Cornelius puts, to the, puts the lie to the idea that all you have to do is be sincere. It also puts, to the, lie, puts the lie to the one who says that one religion is as good as another. It's not. There's only one place that you can find the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ and that's in Christianity. There's only one name given among men whereby we must be saved. That's the name Jesus Christ. Vance Habner has a little uh, daily devotional. Kathy's been using it this year and yesterday morning as we were doing our Bible reading and and prayer, she said, hey, listen to this. This is really good. It's Vance Havner. Well, everything, um, maybe not everything, uh, but a lot of the things that Vance Havner says are really, really good. And, and uh, so I thought I'd share it with you this morning because I think it's pertinent to what we're talking about here. Vance Havner said this when, and by the way, interestingly enough, she took some time to look into his biography, which I had never done. Uh, I love his teaching, but she looked into his biography. And, 
And he was so far away from the Lord, it was incredible. He was like, in a sense, Cornelius. But he came to know Christ as his Savior, and it changed his life, and he become one of the, became one of the greatest evangelists and one of the greatest preachers of the Word of God. He said this, when Christians major on the major and put first things first and give proper attention to their faith in and fellowship with Jesus Christ, they will never leave lesser things undone. He said, we are in peril of getting people to join church, to tithe, and to observe certain religious duties, which indeed ought not to be left undone, but we're omitting the supreme things which they should do first. Such procedure only confirms them in their self-righteousness and makes them doubly hard to reach with spiritual first things. Don't forget, Havner says, that the Pharisees read the scriptures, went to church, prayed, gave a tenth, and went to hell. That's such a great statement. The Pharisees are not our model. There will be two choices in our lives. There will be either we will seek to establish our own righteousness, which is called self-righteousness, or we will accept, put our faith in Jesus Christ and get the righteousness of God through Him. And that is the only, the only way to heaven. The only way to heaven. Well, Verses 34 to 35, we read, Then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear Him and do what is right. Interestingly enough, in that moment, the prejudices and indoctrination of generations of Jews is wiped out instantly. It's wiped out instantly. God does not show favoritism. I love that phrase of Peter's, I now realized. Peter learned something. When's the last time you and I learned something new about God? When's the last time we learned something new about God? Or when's the last time that we realized that there is thinking in our lives and there is acting in our lives that is not according to the Word of God? When is the last time we realized, like Peter said, I now realize, when is the last time we realized that there's something in our lives that ought not to be there? There's a thinking in our lives. Things we're living for that are wrong. We give a lot of guff to Peter, don't we? <laughs> he never opened his mouth except to change feet. That's what we say about Peter. And we give him a lot of guff. Because he was the first one to open his mouth when he should have kept his mouth shut. He is the first one to open his mouth 
But Peter was able to have his mind changed. Peter was able, when he was confronted with the truth of God, to understand that his thinking was wrong. We need to give a lot of thought to that, folks. We need a lot to give a lot of thought to that. One writer said, The apostle understood the significance of the vision given to him on the rooftop. He realized that the distinction between clean and unclean foods had an application to human beings and that contrary to Jewish belief, no people were to be thought of as unclean in the sight of God. Peter realized that he was wrong and realized that he had to adjust his thinking and change his thinking. See, the Christian life is a life of growing and changing. The Christian life is a life of growing and changing, changing our perceptions, changing our outlook, changing our goals, changing our actions. G. Campbell Morgan said, In these words, we have Peter's declaration that the truth had broken in upon him. His words, I perceive, show that a new light had come. God was seen as He had never been seen before, and therefore the Gentiles were seen as never before. How open are you and I to being corrected by God? How open are we to changing our thinking about something we have not understood. Another writer said this, making change is often difficult. Peter's willingness to change was fueled by his being willing to do things he was uncomfortable with, such as living in the home of a tanner. Some great Christian advances are, advances are made not in the strategy sessions of our air-conditioned boardrooms, but in the difficult and uncomfortable situations to which love for people takes us. We need to be willing to change, as Peter was willing to change. Peter said, I now understand, I now realize how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism, that he accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Now, that phrase does not, is not teaching some kind of a work salvation. Doing what's right here means doing what's right, and that is to believe. We'll see that as we go through the rest of Acts chapter 10 and as it's repeated in Acts chapter 11. Doing right is to believe. that. Remember, Jesus should forever have put aside, Jesus should forever have put aside for us any thought that works could save us. In John chapter 6, verses 28 to 29, please write that down in your Bible or write that down on your note sheet. John chapter 6, 
verses 28 to 29, they said to Jesus, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Do you remember Jesus' answer? Believe. The work of God is this, to believe in the one He has sent. Works can't save. Self-righteousness cannot save. Belief in the one He sent. So when Peter says, men from every nation who do what is right, he's talking about those who believe, those who put their faith. Cornelius and his friends were not believers until they put their faith in Christ. And God gave them the Spirit. As we see in the latter part of this chapter. To do what is right is not only to believe, but to do what is right is to fear God, to trust Him, to reverence Him. In verses 36 to 38, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how He went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with Him. He reviews the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. God sent His Message. The word message there in Greek is the word logos. God sent His Word. God sent His Word. In the beginning was the Word, John said. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. God sent His logos, His message, first of all to Israel. Now it's being sent. He's being sent to the Gentiles. Jesus Christ here, Peter tells us, is Lord of all. That is, He's sovereign over Jews, but He's sovereign over Gentiles as well. God anointed Him. He is the Anointed One. Remember, that's what Christ means. The Anointed One. The Old Testament Messiah, Mashiach. Christos means Anointed One. God anointed him he mentions jesus baptism remember in all four accounts of jesus baptism a voice from heaven says what this is my son in whom i am well pleased jesus christ is not just any person is not just a man. He is the God-man. He is the Anointed One. He is God's Messiah sent to them. Declared by God to be the Anointed One. Isaiah spoke of the Anointed One in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1-3, to doing great things, a passage that Jesus applies to Himself in Luke chapter 4, verses 16-21. to Peter enumerates some of the things that Jesus did which substantiate his claims. Ray Stedman summarized it this way, he destroyed the effects of evil everywhere he went. 
verses 39 to 41, Peter says that they were eyewitnesses. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. They were eyewitnesses of what Jesus did. That's what it means to be a witness. To witness to what Jesus has done in your life. To witness what Jesus has done to, to what Jesus has done in my life. To witness to what the Word of God teaches from the pens of those who lived with Him, walked with Him, touched Him both before and after the resurrection. He was real. Ate with Him both before and after the resurrection. Peter and the others were witnesses. Now, as I said earlier, if you want to strike terror in the heart of a Christian, ask them about witnessing. I like what Leroy I'm said in his devotional. He said, the Bible says that you and I are called, excuse me, let me read it right. The Bible says that you and I are not called to be spiritual judges or lawyers. <laughs> I like that. That's, we usually think of ourselves as spiritual judges. We judge everybody around us. We judge the world around us. We judge unbelievers around us. The Bible says that you and I are not called to be spiritual judges or lawyers, but witnesses. The apostles of Jesus understood this well. That's what Peter's telling us here in verse 39. We're witnesses of everything he did. Imes goes on to say, what qualifies a person as a good witness for Christ? The witness must be familiar with the subject under consideration. I like that. The more you know Jesus Christ, the more I know Jesus Christ, the more we learn of Him in the Scriptures, the more we learn of Him from the eyewitnesses who were with Him, both before His crucifixion and death and resurrection and after. The more we learn of Him, the more we have to share. The witness, I'm says, must be familiar with the subject under consideration. The apostles had not been off in Egypt or Spain during the public ministry of Jesus. They had been with Him. They were eyewitnesses of His life and death and resurrection because of their actions and their reputations for courage and integrity. Their words were taken seriously. That's what we are. We're just witnesses. We're witnesses to what those who knew him said about him. Sometime, we don't have time now, look up 1 John 1 where John says, you know, we, we were with him, we heard him, we saw him, we touched him. Learn as much as you can from the Scripture about those who walked with Him. Say about Him. And think about what He has done in your life and what He is doing in your life and just share it. Just share it.
Now, we all, again, we all have this idea that, oh, my goodness, we're, don't, don't ask me to witness. I'm also shared something, and I'm going to close with this this morning. He said, some years ago, my wife and I were in Christ Church, New Zealand, on a preaching mission. A young man came by our motel to take us to the university for a meeting, and as we headed for the car, he said, I've heard you talk about witnessing, and on the way to the meeting, I want to watch you witness to someone. <laughs> I like that. I want to watch you witness to someone. To whom, I ask? Oh, we'll just stop in some neighborhood, knock on the door, and I'll watch you witness to the person who answered the door. Answers the door. I'm said, I admired his creativity, but it seemed like a faulty plan. Okay, I said, but first I need to stop at the desk to see if my laundry is done. I mentioned to the desk clerk that I was on my way to the university to conduct a Bible study. She seemed interested, so I proceeded to explain how I'd come to Christ, clearly outlining the gospel just as I finished. Several people came into the lobby, and I couldn't pursue the matter any further. As, I got, as we got into the car, I said to the young man, man, well, there it was. There was what? He asked. You saw me witness. It was so simple he had missed it. It was so simple he had missed it. And Imes concludes, most of our witnessing opportunities are just as ordinary. We won't recognize them unless our eyes are open. We're witnesses. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for... Peter's sharing with Cornelius. Thank you that while we could not make ourselves right for heaven, your son, because of his death on Calvary's cross and his resurrection from the dead, offers us his righteousness if we'll just put our faith in him and help those of us who know him to share the truths we know, to just simply witness to the Savior we know. In Jesus' name, amen.